reading from Psalm 124 this morning. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive when their anger flared against us. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Movie that swept, swept up the Oscars, everything, everywhere, all at once. Tells the story of an immigrant Chinese family in America. Nestled within this conflict between the two main characters named Waymond and uh, Evelyn, lies this conflict of their family business and the IRS auditors, but also a conflict between them as parents and their daughter's romantic relationship. What makes the movie unique is its reliance on this idea of the multiverse. And if you aren't already familiar with the multiverse from the Marvel Cinematic Universe series, it's this idea that parallel universes exist because of every single life choice that you make. So in the multiverse, there are parallel versions of yourself living in alternate realities, alternate storylines because of every single decision that has been made. Now, while this idea of a multiverse frees up writers to do some creative storytelling, what does it have to do with us today? It hurts my brain enough to keep up with the multiverse storylines in a movie. I don't know if you feel like that too. Okay, amen. <laughs> but it even makes, uh, it hurts my brain even more to think of a decision I'm gonna make and all the possible outcomes and where they could lead down to. How often do we replay choices that we have made in the past and imagining a different possible outcome? How often do we experience regret for a past decision or a past action, thinking that life could be different? It could be better, if only. If only I didn't say that to a loved one. If only I wasn't alone. If only I hadn't experienced suffering and loss in my life. If only. Now, you don't have to believe in a multiverse to go through life with this lingering oasis of an alternate if only hanging in our consciousness. How many of you know what I'm talking about? While this idea of the multiverse is novel, maybe in recent years, the, this if only alternate reality in our brains is an age-old human instinct. It even shows up in the imagination of the ancients. It shows up in this lectionary reading of Psalm 124 this week. So today we're going to walk through this psalm in three movements, competing narratives, competing threats, and a compelling name. Competing narratives, competing threats, and a compelling name. Now, Psalm 124 is a brief psalm, just eight verses, attributed to King David and likely written at a time in his reign when the nation of Israel was, well, not quite a nation yet, but a people, but it was establishing itself in the land as they battled the Philistines. 
The psalm describes the gratitude of someone who recognizes the help of the living God in a time of great threat and imagines possible alternate realities if the Lord had not been on their side. If you see the first few verses of the psalm, David begins with two if statements. For all you logic computer programmers, this is the if-then. If condition and the res responses. There's, there are two competing narratives. One narrative is with the Lord on our side. The other is with the Lord not on our side. David describes the results if the Lord had not been on their side in verses 3 to 5. What, are the, what do those say? Well, there would be, they would have attacked us. They would have swallowed us. The flood would have engulfed, engulfed us. The waters would have swept over us. Now, in light of a battle for, uh, and war over land and survival, these assurances of the Lord being on their side is an important one. But how do we translate this idea of the Lord being on our side to contemporary lives in the West, where we enjoy relative safety and security and f wealth and freedom? We live in the world's wealthiest country by far, enjoying significant freedom of mobility and choice compared to others in the rest of the world. Now, acknowledging there are still many imperfections and injustices to overcome, as Matt alluded to this morning, and 60 years after Martin Luther King marched on the National Mall, 60 years yesterday, we're still marching for the same kind of rights to be fully flourished. But most of us don't have the same kind of enemies that David does seeking to take us out, right? So depending on the breadth of the you know, resources that you draw from for your history or for your news, you often realize that there are often competing narratives proposed to us. Pundits will speak of alternative facts or false narratives or racist or colonialist interpretations when facts are presented that go against a set of assumptions or goals or beliefs. Scholar and theologian Rebecca McLaughlin confronts one narrative that the Christian faith has in fact become a force for evil rather than for good in the world. And this idea has become popular even amongst professing Jesus followers. For many, Christianity is primarily seen primarily as a white, Western religion intrinsically tied to cultural imperialism. So even professing Christians may feel a tinge of guilt when speaking of their faith. And of course, we do lament the many ways that indigenous cultures have been erased or ripped apart by in the name of Christianity. And in America, we lament how the Christian ideals and beliefs have been married with political power in the form of Christian nationalism. And the Western church has to face and reconcile with these hard truths and injustices. But in her book, Confronting Christianity, McLaughlin highlights stories of a vibrant Christianity in the global south, around the world. She describes her meeting with Christian academics in India, whose minority tribes that they belong to don't even count on the ladder of the caste system. And there they face incredible discrimination in a country dominated by Hinduism. 
Yet these fellow Jesus followers embrace the gift of the Christian faith that has been shared with them by Christian missionaries, Western missionaries. Even more, this reality of a significant and vibrant indigenous Christian communities throughout Asia and Africa and South America, whose numbers actually exceed the number of Christians identified in the West. All of these signal to us an alternative narrative, an alternate reality that we must also acknowledge is true. One of those Indian uh, uh, tribal members and scholars named Kanato Chofi says this. He says, we must abandon this absurd idea that Christianity is a Western religion. I would further add that even to assert or propagate Western and often white guilt for Christianity being a Western religion actually reflects our Western American-centric view of how important we think our lives are, even our critiques. How big must our heads be to think that being part of a maybe 200 plus million identifying Christians in America can speak for roughly 2.6 billion Christians in the world whose faith in Christ is just as vibrant and real. Now this brings us back to the psalm. Much of what we desire for alternative narratives is not a new instinct. It's a slightly more sophisticated way of saying, if only. It's easy to think that those who disagree with us are not on our side and presume the idea that God is on our side more than the other side. But at the core, the subtext is, if only more people thought and did things like me, then the world would be a better place. That's often what we're saying. And of course, our side is always the side that God is on, right? When it, especially when it comes to historical, political, or social views. But that's a dangerous place to be. It's actually full of hubris and assumption. What this psalm highlights for us is the narrative that we must get down. The most important narrative is one that there is great comfort in knowing that God is on our side. When God is on our side, there is safety, there is help, because God is a God of love. God is for us and cares deeply for our well-being and for the well-being of our world. And secondly, perhaps even more importantly, recognizing how God might be for us is more important than that God for us. Let me repeat that. How God is really for us is probably more important that God is for us. This leads us to the second movement. You know, David uses this vivid imagery to describe the threats against God's people. Take a look at 124, 3b. The second one says, when their anger flared... Oh, wait, am I reading it correctly? Oh, yeah, when, oh, 3a. When they swallowed us up, there's an earthquake. Verse 4, there's a flood. The flood that would have engulfed us. Verse 5, the raging waters. Verse Seven, we escape the bird like a bird from the fowler's snare. Verse six, we have not been torn to pieces. In a time of battle, these are more than poetic devices. 
These images represent existential threats to their livelihood, yet David does not seem to be overwhelmed by these harms. He is not, he, he, these threats do not define his identity. These threats do, do not define his response. He is not stuck in a fight or flight response. Why? Because he holds on to a more significant truth, that God is for them. With God on their side, David realizes that he and his people are not just, have not just emerged unscathed, but he says that the threats have been eliminated. We're told that the snare that the fowler, the fowler is a trapper. The snare that the fowler has set has been broken. That trap no longer works, no longer is functional. The trap is rendered powerless. Otherwise, they would have been swallowed up, torn apart, and swept away. And that's what David recognizes and holds on to because of the help, because of the help of the Lord. Now, while all of these physical threats are eminently scary, I don't think any of us would want to go through those things, yet God's people remains, remain safe. Why? Because there is a more significant storyline, a more significant reality compared to these threats that they face. And this more significant reality of God being on their side actually, in fact, reveals another unspoken but perhaps even graver threat. As scary as a natural disaster or a predator might be, there is a greater threat that exists. And that greater threat is when God is not on your side. What David is doing in the psalm is not denying the presence of these threats or downplaying them as if they aren't real or if they are not harmful. Instead, he is highlighting a more significant threat that exists, that Jesus the Son of God says again, also in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. What does, Matthew, what does Jesus say there? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In this chapter... In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is addressing the fears of his disciples as he commissions them out to proclaim on this mission of proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. He warns them that they're going to get persecuted. They might even die because of this message for following Jesus. These are real threats to their livelihood, to their health, and to their lives. But even more grave is this threat that comes from beyond the grave. When he says, there is one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, it's not clear from the original language who the one is. Or him in other English translations. But I think it makes best sense in scripture and the context here that the one Jesus is referring to is actually the living God and not Satan. Because as much as Satan, the evil one seeks to disrupt the plan of God, as much as Satan wants to cast doubt and fear upon humanity, as much as Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, only the living God has the power to create and the power to judge in eternity, to make that happen. Jesus' warning is a warning to walk in reverent fear of God despite the real fears of these physical threats 
in this present life. The question for us is, how will we live in response to threats that we see? Whether they're physical, psychological, relational, and some of us might even think political. Are we drawn into reverent trust before the living God of Scripture? Or are we drawn into fight or flight responses in light of these threats? Are we drawn in praise and hope before the living God? Or do we focus on these alternate narratives that trauma and abuse and grief can inflict upon us? Yes, those are real things. Those are live and painful experiences. And yes, they can lead us down a spiraling um, a path of depression and hopelessness. But those are the very, uh, there is also a, another possible storyline that we can live by. One by which we can turn to the living God for help. And often we can turn to God for help with the discerning support of a Christian community or with a wise counselor and therapist or a spiritual director. We are turning to a more powerful storyline. We are saying yes, we can say yes to a storyline of redemption and healing and love and hope. Because living a life where God is not on our, hel our help and not on our side, especially in the life to come, is a much more serious threat to our livelihood than any other threat we might face in this present life. So thankfully, switching storylines with God's help is not an impossible task. And this leads us to the final movement, a compelling storyline. The psalm concludes with this grand declaration in verse 8, saying, Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. But what does it mean to find help in the name of the Lord? See, up until Moses the prophet encounters God in the burning bush encounter on, in Exodus 3, the name of God, the identity of God, the living God had never been revealed at least to our knowledge. In a culture of pantheism and polytheism of the surrounding Egyptian culture, knowing the identity of the one true God was of utmost importance. Even more, for the ancients, a name revealed the essential and important character of a person. So I'll, I have Exodus 3 up on the screen. But beside them, you'll see the distinctions displayed in their references to God. See, God was known to Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as Elohim, which is translated God in English. But in Exodus 3, 14 and 15, the living God reveals his name to Moses as, in English, what we say Yahweh or Jehovah. It's a variant of the Hebrew verb Hayah, which means to be in all of its variations, I am or I will be. See, God's name revealed to Moses is simply, I am, to be, I will be. In this encounter with Moses, the living God reveals both God's essential character, I am, and God's name. Because he says, this is who I am. I am who I am. And then he says, this is what you will say to the Israelites. Yahweh is the name to which you can refer to me. Now, 
When you read the capitalized versions of the Lord in your Bible, in our English translations, it is referring to the personal name of God. It's not just a title, Lord, or some hierarchy. It is a, there's a historical, you know, description of why this name came about for Jehovah or Yahweh. But that's, pro that's what we need to recognize is when we see in our English Bibles, the Lord capitalized, L-O-R-D, it's referencing the name of the Lord, the personal name of God. Now, biblical scholars over time have understood the divine name Yahweh to convey this, how the living God of scriptures is unique. The living God is self-existent. The living God is the sustainer and creator of all things. The living God is unchangeable in being and in character. The living God is eternal. All of these attributes are eminently divine. Now, while each of these points is true of God, the main focus in the Exodus passage is on the Lord's promise to be with Moses and God's people. And given the context of Exodus 3, verse 12, just a few verses earlier, God begins it saying, I will be with you. The name of Yahweh, the Lord, is a clear reminder of God's promises to his people for his help to them, especially in their oppression under slavery to Egypt. What this psalm affirms and the Christian faith presents to us in history is that is a God who is not an impersonal divine being, one who is aloof and far off or mysterious and unknowable. But the living God of Scripture is deeply, deeply personal, deeply relational, and demonstrates overwhelming care for God's people, especially for those who put their trust in him. And God gives us his personal name, Yahweh, to Moses and the people of Israel to relate to in a way that was unfamiliar to the, those practicing their religions of the time. Here's the thing, though. We have something that Moses doesn't. On this side of the resurrect cross and the resurrection, we have an even more personal revelation of God's personal presence with us, relational presence with us. We don't just have a personal name that God gives us. We have a person in the flesh. We have a living demonstration of God's reality, of God's character, and of God's presence, and of God's action in history in the clearest form in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God's Son and Jesus comes to us to be with us, to show that God is for us, and to help us in ways that no one ever imagined especially at that time. Jesus, the eternal one of God, who was present at the creation of the universe. And Jesus, who is the fullest embodiment of the divine, reveals a new narrative for people to live by. Jesus comes to settle all of our if-only questions that we ask of ourselves and that often define our lives. Jesus, the author and completer of all of history, has definitively said through his death and resurrection that this is the way the world will be. I will redeem you from your shame and from your mistakes. I will restore all that is broken in your life and in this world. I will make all things new 
and it will be so. Why? Because I am the I am. And I will be with you always. Jesus saves us from the biggest threat of all. The possibility of being separated and apart from the God of love who created us. And though we may not welcome them, we may face physical, psychological, or relational threats in this present life. But they do not have to define our lives and dash our hopes. Because when we turn to Jesus and put our full weight of our lives and of our hopes upon him, we have great assurance of God's help in this present life and in the life to come. So today, let me ask you, what if only questions have you been carrying in your life? And how might Jesus, what kind of alternate storylines have you been wishing for? And how might Jesus be inviting you to trust him more? What storylines of help and of healing and of hope and redemption might the Spirit of God be inviting you to see anew in light of Christ? Because Jesus is for you. Jesus is with you. And Jesus will be with you if you're willing to let him. I pray that as you do so, you might find so much joy and freedom as you trust in the compelling name of Jesus. And that just might make our hearts sing in ways that they have been designed to sing. May it be so in the name and for the name of him who makes it all happen. Amen.